Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Tim, uh, one of the pastors here at Brookside, and it's great to see you. Thanks for braving the weather and, and being here together this morning. I'm, I'm guessing here on a weekend like this with, with Thanksgiving just a few days behind us, we've got some visitors here that are maybe just getting ready to drive out of town, head home later today. So if this is your first time here, if you're visiting, a uh, special welcome to you. But, but for all of us, man, it's so good to worship our Lord together on a day like today. And then also, happy Thanksgiving. I mean, we have so much to be grateful for already. And then when you wrap all of that together with some extra time with family and friends, with some great food, and then with like a whole lot of football, is how I spent a lot of my time this weekend. Go Buckeyes, right? Um, it makes for a great, great few days. Well, since this last weekend was Thanksgiving, I'm guessing a lot of us sat down to some sort of special meal, maybe on Thursday or some other day over the last few days, and if your meal was anything like the one that I had on Thursday, you had a ton of food spread out in front of you. Stuffing and mashed potatoes and corn and green bean casserole and carrots and corn and pumpkin pie and ice cream and who knows what else you had in front of you. But, but along with all of these side dishes and desserts that I just mentioned that are usually part of Thanksgiving, we all know that the centerpiece of the Thanksgiving meal is turkey. I was talking to Jeff Dart earlier this week, and he's like, maybe it should be ham. And I'm like, come on. We can't have ham for Thanksgiving. It has, to be, it has to be turkey, right? I mean, cooked to perfection, falling off the bone, moist, delicious. Turkey is the main dish of Thanksgiving. Well, today, I want to talk with you about, about the main dish of everything that Christianity is all about. I want to talk with you about, about the centerpiece of everything God is doing in and for the world. And so I want to talk about the claim that Jesus died, and then most specifically, that Jesus rose again. I want to help you see today that this claim that Jesus rose again is true, and that this claim is big enough that it means something for every one of us here today. Well, I know that's a bold statement, right? That how big of an idea Jesus' resurrection is. But, but I'm not just saying this to be dramatic. I mean, I didn't, I didn't just make this up. Check out what the Apostle Paul says. He's writing to a church in a place called Corinth shortly after Jesus' resurrection. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That right there shows us how big of a deal Jesus' resurrection is. The, the Christian faith and the reality that it paints as true. It is, it is useless, right, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And so for the last few months, we've been walking slowly through, through a bunch of the gospel of Luke in the New Testament. I love it. We've seen all these claims that Jesus made about being the Messiah, the promised deliverer who would take everything that's wrong with the world and make it right. We've seen Jesus teaching us about how to live. We've seen his own example of compassion and forgiveness. As we keep reading Luke, we read about Jesus' death on the cross for us in our place. I mean, we've seen so many great things that draw us in to life with Jesus, right? Well, we're attracted to this picture we get. The, 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 the needle of our spiritual interest should be moving. I've talked with a bunch of you over the last few months as we walk through this series that, that are attracted to everything we've seen in the life of Jesus. And Paul tells us all of that is useless 
if Jesus didn't rise again after his crucifixion, after his death. That's how big of a deal this is. But the question I want to ask you this morning is, but what if Jesus really did rise from the dead? Because because we can see what that means if we just spin this statement around and make it a positive statement, right? Because if Christ has been raised, then our preaching has meaning, which is something Jeff and I are grateful for, right? But, But most specifically, if Christ has been raised, our faith has meaning. Everything Christianity says is true. Everything Christianity points to has value, right? So that's how big of an idea this is. This is the boots on the ground of difference that Jesus' resurrection makes for each of your lives, each of our lives here this morning, right? Because it means that Jesus Christ really is Lord and Savior over everything. It means that sin has been defeated. We can find acceptance and assurance in the forgiveness that Jesus makes available. Well, we have purpose in the mission Jesus sends us on. When we think about, when we think about eternity, we don't have to be filled with dread or, or uncertainty. But when we think about eternity, we can be filled with hope, with expectation and anticipation. And it's all true because of Jesus' resurrection. Maybe you're here today, and some of those words and ideas I just mentioned, uh, maybe they're, they're words that, and things you're looking for. Right? Maybe you are here because you are on a search for acceptance. You are on a search to know that someone sees you right, and loves you. You want to know that sin doesn't have to have the final word. You, you, want, this, you want this forgiveness right, that, that Jesus makes available. You, you want to think about eternity, not with dread, but with hope and assurance. And in a way that nothing else does, Jesus offers all of that. And the way that I can say that so confidently is because of the resurrection. Because everything Jesus said and, true, and did is true, vindicated by the fact that he was raised from the dead. The best news ever is all true because Jesus is alive. He's risen And so today, I just want to keep drilling more and more deeply into that statement that that Jesus' resurrection is true. So I'm going to read a good chunk of Luke 24 here in just a second. But here's what we're going to see as we read through Luke 24. I mean, you'll see these two points for yourself as we read through it. This is what we're going to come back to after we read it. We're going to see Jesus' bodily resurrection really happened. And so we'll see a a few reasons today that point us in that direction. That we can have great confidence that this is true. And we'll see that Jesus' resurrection makes a deep difference. Not some superficial difference that just skims the surface of our lives. But, but, but it offers a deep difference that really changes us from the inside out. That really offers us the things that we're looking for. Acceptance and purpose and forgiveness and all of that. I, I talk with people all the time that want this sort of deep difference in their lives. They don't want a superficial change. They don't want to just change the veneer of their lives. They they want an overhaul, right? And that's what Jesus' resurrection offers to us, a deep difference. But so the place we need to start, though, of course, is with Luke 24 and reading what Luke tells us there. So, So here's the setup for Luke 24. In Luke chapters 22 and 23, we read about Jesus' arrest and his trial. And so Jesus... The, the one who had proclaimed freedom in his trial, he is, he is bound and he is held captive. 
Jesus is the one who had shown compassion and dignity to everyone he encounters. And in his trial, his arrest, his crucifixion, Jesus is, is beaten and he's mocked. Jesus is the one who who'd proclaimed forgiveness and offered forgiveness to so many. And in his trial and crucifixion, we, we see that Jesus is the one who's condemned to death, to painful death, death on a cross. And then as Luke 23 finishes, Jesus' body is taken down from the cross by a couple of his disciples. And he's buried in a tomb, sealed with a stone. And that's where Luke 23 ends. But that's not where the story ends. Let's pick things up with Luke chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. So, so this is just part of customary burial practice, right? They're just wanting to give Jesus an honorable burial by doing this. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He isn't here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered Jesus' words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, he gets up and he sprints to the tomb. He runs to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. And so, so now let's skip down to verse 36. Verses 13 to 35 is a great story about Jesus actually appearing to do disciples on the road to Emmaus. Read it later today. It's, it's a great story, but that's a whole sermon in itself. So, so for today, we're going to skip down to verse 36. It says, while they, were still think, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. So now he's back with the 11 apostles and his closest followers. And he said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. But he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? And then Jesus starts to just ask them to pay attention to their senses. Right? He, says, he says, look at what you can see. Feel what you can touch. So Jesus is appealing to this empirical evidence to, to, to verify the fact that he's really been raised. He says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. So, so, so look at how encountering Jesus changed even what they were feeling. Just a few verses earlier, they're confused and they're frightened. But now they're amazed and they have joy. But while they still didn't believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they give him a fish stick, right? They, they give him a piece of broiled fish, and he takes it, and he eats it in their presence. Just further confirming that Jesus isn't, just, he isn't some ghost. He's not an apparition. He's physical. He can eat. And then he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So Jesus helps them connect the dots here across the whole Old Testament, showing them that the Old Testament points to and culminates in him. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Verse 50. When he, led them out, uh, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to, to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And so, so now we've seen it directly from the words that Luke wrote, right? This chapter is all about Jesus rising from the dead. So from what we just saw, right, we've seen it ourselves. What can we say about Jesus' resurrection? Well, let's go back to those points I mentioned a few minutes ago. One thing that's clear from this chapter is that Luke is showing us beyond a shadow of any doubt that Jesus really did bodily rise from the dead. Jesus' bodily resurrection really happened. And it's worth spending some time on this because we live in one of those times and one of those places that, that we struggle to wrap our minds around anything that sounds supernatural. I mean, we're swimming in a culture that does its best to explain things naturally and mechanically. And so when something falls outside of what can be explained naturally, our knee-jerk reaction is maybe to discount it and explain it away or just simply to ignore it. And hear me clearly on what I'm about to say. No one is asking you to check your brains at the door when you embrace Christianity and follow Jesus. I personally love to study and think and dig, dig deeply into things. I mean, Christianity's intellectual muscle and its intellectual credibility is one of the things that draws me further and further into it. But, but specifically in the case of this resurrection... The, the thing that I would have you do is not to just simply discount it. Don't, don't ignore it. But let's just follow the evidence where it leads. And if that evidence leads us to a bigger reality than something that can be explained naturally, then, then I think the most intellectually honest way forward is to embrace that larger reality. Isn't it? A reality that's not irrational, but that's trans-rational, that's, that's supernatural. Simon Greenleaf, he was a law professor who helped put the Harvard Law School on the map in the 19th century. He wrote this three-volume legal masterpiece on, on evidences as they build cases for legal cases, you know, that uh, uh, it's still highly regarded today. And, and the, the U.S. judicial system still operates on rules of evidence that Simon Greenleaf helped establish. So, so he's a smart guy. He knew what he was doing, Right? And among other issues that Simon Greenleaf had with Christianity, he thought the resurrection was a hoax. He just thought people were making it up. Wishful thinking. But then, but then three of Simon Greenleaf's students, Christian students, just very humbly approached him one day. I'm guessing he was an intimidating figure, right? Smart, Harvard professor. But, but they approached him, and they, they just challenged him to say, hey, Professor Greenleaf, would you take those same evidences... That you, are, that you so carefully make a case for in, in legal matters. And would you just apply those same evidences 
to, to, the, histor- to the historical nature, the historicity, right, of, of Jesus' resurrection. And then they just said, follow the evidence where it leads. So Simon Greenleaf dug in, he took him up on the challenge, and he applied his great evidence-based mind to, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and as he did so, he became convinced that the best place, all the evidence points, is that the resurrection is true, that it really happened. He evaluated all of the evidence, and he said, this is where it points that the resurrection really happened. And so he became a Christian, actually, and became, instead of somebody who attacked Christianity, he became a defender of it. And so what I want to do in just a few minutes is build a case for the reliability of the resurrection. And hang with me through this. We're going we're to swim in some deep waters for, for just a little bit. We can, we can handle it, right? We've been well fed and we're thinking well, so, so we can handle some deep thinking. But, but here's why this is important. Because if we, really, if we really want the resurrection to change us in all the ways we've been talking about, right? The, the purpose and the forgiveness and the hope and the meaning and all this stuff that the resurrection offers... If we want it to change us in all these very practical ways, we don't want to base that change on wishful thinking, do we? No. If we're going to build our lives on top of something, we want it to be built on a solid foundation. So so if we build our lives around this truth that Jesus is the risen Savior and Lord of the world, I know, at least for me, I, I want there to be a solid foundation underneath me. And so, so here's a few evidences that point us in the direction of saying, yeah, Jesus really did rise from the dead. So first of all, we want to say that Jesus died. And this one seems basic, but it's not, because there are whole theories out there that say that Jesus, he just appeared dead. If you've ever seen The Princess Bride, the, this theory would say that Jesus was just mostly dead, right? Like Wesley was in that movie. And so they say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because he was never really dead. He just got better, or at least better enough to get up and start walking around. Greg Kokel, he's a Christian thinker dude. I don't know if you want me to describe him like that. You know, he's a smart guy. He knows what he's talking about, right? He's written books on, on just defending and explaining the Christian faith. Here's what he says in a really worthwhile little book on Christian worldview called The Story of Reality. Greg Kokel says, there's no question that Jesus was dead. I mean, the Romans killed him. And the Romans were really good at crucifixion. They had perfected it as a means of capital punishment. Right? So the Romans killed him. He'd been brutally beaten, whipped, fastened to a cross with nails in his hands and feet. Exposed naked all afternoon in the April air. Speared through his chest. Right? Then declared dead by a battle-seasoned Roman centurion who certainly would have known death. When he saw it, he'd been embalmed with over 80 pounds of chemicals, and Jesus' body was stretched out on a slab of rock and then sealed in a cold crypt. And so, was Jesus really dead? Yes, Jesus was really dead. Another line of evidence building the case for the resurrection is that the tomb was empty. I mean, eventually we just have to ask the question, don't we, that that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, where is his body? Those in power had zero motive to move his body, and Jesus' followers had zero means to move his body. Especially when you remember that, that Jesus' body was sealed in a tomb and placed under guard, right? 
In fact, all the gospel accounts talk about how grief-stricken Jesus' followers were at his death, how surprised they were at his resurrection. They weren't scheming anything. They were overwhelmed with grief is the consistent picture that we get. And so we have to reckon with the fact that the tomb was empty and suddenly it becomes more and more plausible to say that, that maybe God did raise Jesus from the dead. A huge piece of evidence for Jesus' resurrection is that he was seen by others. Now we see how the evidences are starting to pile on top of one another as we build this case, right? Not only do we have an empty tomb, but we have claims by multiple people over the course of more than a month that say that they had seen and interacted with the risen Jesus. There's even a large group of more than 500 that Jesus appeared to at one time that we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. And so these aren't hallucinations. This isn't just people seeing what they want to see. The, the evidence we have from the first century documents, right, the New Testament, all point us in this direction. We even, read, we even read that in Luke 24. When Jesus appears to his followers, he knows they're doubting their own eyes. And so that's why he shows them his hands and his feet to go out of his way to point, to go out of his way to say, I'm flesh and I'm blood. And so this isn't just people seeing what they want to see. Jesus died. The tomb was empty. Jesus appeared to many others. And, and then the fourth evidence that we'll look at today is that lives were changed. From what I could tell, this truth of, of the life change in Jesus' followers was the tipping point for Simon Greenleaf, that Harvard Law professor I mentioned a couple minutes ago. You see, every one of Jesus' apostles, his closest followers, they all believed and proclaimed that Jesus really did rise from the dead. That's a, that's a significant percentage, right, of the apostles when all of them that were remaining proclaimed it, right? And then every one of Jesus' followers, his apostles, they all experienced suffering because of it. Church tradition tells us that all of Jesus' apostles except for one, they ended up dying for their belief that Jesus rose from the dead. And so when people are willing to suffer for what they believe, it shows how sincerely Jesus' followers held on to this and believed this truth that Jesus really was risen. Jesus' followers, they're not just making this up because it suits them or because it's convenient. I mean, two, two great examples of the changed lives in Jesus' followers are a couple guys by the name of James and Paul that we read about in the New Testament. Listen to this. The New Testament tells us that during Jesus' earthly ministry, right, up until his death and resurrection, Jesus' brothers didn't believe anything he said, right? They just couldn't wrap their minds around the fact. This kid we grew up with, he said he's the Messiah, right? So, so they didn't believe him during his earthly ministry. But then 1 Corinthians tells us, 15 tells us, that Jesus appeared to James after his, after his resurrection, and James went from skeptic to believer very suddenly and very dramatically, right? Becoming a leader in the early church. Or the book of Acts introduces us to this guy by the name of Paul. Paul was as, as opposed to Christianity as everyone, as, as anyone, even going so far as to kill followers of Jesus that he encountered. So he was on this death, on this witch hunt for Christians. But he encounters the risen Jesus, and he goes from persecuting Christianity to embracing Christianity very suddenly and very dramatically, practically overnight. And so if this is how Jesus fought, if this is how Jesus' resurrection, if this is how it changed guys like James and like Paul, actual people who lived in the first century, 
how might Jesus' resurrection change you? Right? I mean, Jesus' resurrection changed them where, where, where God took all of the unique aspects of their personality and just channeled it in a direction where God could use them very significantly, very meaningfully. How might God use the resurrection of Jesus Christ to take the unique aspects of your personality and, and as you build your life around Jesus, you, you channel all of that towards, towards the good of others and the glory of God. How might God use that? How would that change your life personally? How would that change your family, your, your friends on campus, right? Your neighborhood if you did that. This reality of changed lives cannot be overlooked as we think about this pile of evidence we've accumulated for the resurrection. And so all of this, I think, just leads us to affirm what we've already seen in Luke 24, that Jesus' bodily resurrection really happened. It's true that Jesus did rise from the dead after being killed on a cross. And that last point we talked about, that, that lives were changed, it takes us right into what we'll be talking about next, that Jesus' resurrection makes a deep difference in our lives. Throughout the course of Luke 24, we saw that everyone who encounters the risen Jesus is changed uh, deeply, right? I mean, they, they, they go from grief and confusion and fear to mission and to joy and amazement in a very short period of time as they encounter the risen Jesus. Everything Jesus said and did is true, they know. And so they are on mission to share that news. And let's just focus in on, on Peter. We, we saw him a little bit already, right? Peter is one of Jesus' closest disciples. We, fought, we saw from the first 12 verses that when Peter hears from these ladies that Jesus' tomb is empty, he beelines it to that tomb. And so we get this vivid picture. I mean, you can close your eyes and see Peter standing there, maybe still out of breath from sprinting so, so fast, so hard to the tomb, holding these, these empty linens that Jesus was buried in. The, the, the wheels of his mind spinning to try to process everything he's taking in. And then by the end of that chapter, we find Peter experiencing the joy and the amazement and the, and the mission that all of the rest of Jesus' followers are. But we know a lot more about Peter as we keep reading into the book of Acts, right? The, the, the next installment of what Luke wrote. Peter sets himself apart very early on as, as one of the leaders of the Christian movement. Where he proclaims right away after Jesus' resurrection that Jesus really is raised from the dead. And then he suffers for it. He's beaten, he's imprisoned, and he fears for his life because of his conviction that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And then, and then tradition tells us, actually, that Peter was crucified for his conviction that Jesus was the true risen Savior. But, but Peter didn't see himself fit to die in the same way that his Lord Jesus died. And so he asked to be crucified upside down, just to distinguish himself from his Lord and Savior. And so what catalyzed the change we see in Peter? For from confusion to mission, even mission to the point of death for his risen Savior. What sustained him through all this suffering that he experienced? Peter tells us. He tells us what sustained him. He tells us what catalyzed him in, in a letter that he wrote to a group of believers in the first century. Just a few decades after Jesus' resurrection. Check out what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. 
Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. I mean, don't miss what Peter is showing us here. I mean, I've been reading the New Testament for a long time. I've been reading the Bible for a long time. And for me personally, this phrase that he's given us new birth into a living hope, that that phrase draws me in every time. We live in a time and place. We need hope. And the hope that Christianity offers is an empty hope or dead hope. The, The hope that Christianity offers is a living hope. And how does it offer it? It tells us, right? Peter tells us, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That hope can change us right now, how we process things, how we look into the future. And then, and then Peter goes further to show us how secure this future that God gives us is into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. How? How is that possible? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the difference that the resurrection makes. It doesn't only make a difference for us, it makes a difference in us. Giving us that sort of living hope and that confident assurance in a bright future. Ben Ellis, he was a Bible teacher and a Latin teacher at a private Christian academy in the Nashville area. And towards the end of 2015, Ben was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer that that claimed his life just nine or ten months later in September of 2016. Ben was only 50 years old and he left behind a, a loving wife, a great wife, and five kids. Nine days before he passed away, 400 high school students from the school where Ben taught they, they gathered in his front yard, and they just, they just gathered to sing worship songs because they knew how much Ben Ellis loved to worship his God. So they did this. It was just a very natural way for them to come out in, in a show of affirmation and support and love and, and care for, for the family, but also very specifically for Ben. And while they sang, Ben leaned forward into view from his bedroom window. He was, he was too sick to go downstairs. This is a picture of it. He was too sick to go downstairs and sing with him. So, so he just opened up his window, got into view of the kids, and he, and he just sang right along with them. And so, so here's in a man who is in his very final stages of life. This picture was taken nine days before he passed into eternity. And here he is singing worship songs that talk about the greatness of Jesus and the life that he offers. And then before the students left, Ben Ellis sent a message down to them from the headmaster of the school. And here's what he said. He just said, he said, tell them it is all true. See, you see, the lyrics they had been singing weren't just words. They were all true as they sang about the greatness of Jesus and the life that he offers. The the, the faith that Ben taught to students that the faith that Ben believed wasn't an empty faith. It wasn't just wishful thinking. It's all true. How could Ben Ellis say that? 
I mean, as he stared death in the face, what could give him that sort of confident hope? What could give him that sort of assurance? The answer is the resurrection. The best news ever is all true because Jesus really did rise from the dead. So today we've been talking about about the centerpiece, the, the main dish of everything God is doing in and for the world. We've been talking about the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and you can leave here today with all of, these, all of these confident reasons why we can know that that really did happen at one point in history, that Jesus is a living, resurrected Messiah. We've seen that this truth that Jesus has risen, that it means something, that it can actually change the way that we live today and this week and this month. But so here's where I want to get personal. What significance does the truth that Jesus has raised What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you today? What does it mean for you this week as you look ahead to the next five weeks, six weeks of 2018? Because Jesus is raised, it confirms that everything about who he said he is, is true. He is the Savior who died for our sins. He is the Lord of all creation. Are you following Jesus As your Savior, have you trusted him to take your sins, to deal with them in a way that you never can? Are you you following him as the Lord of your life? And and because Jesus is raised, it gives us a mission. We, We have news to tell and a story to share. Are you engaged in the mission that Jesus has given every one of his followers? To go and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. To point others to him. In, in our words and our actions. And then because Jesus is raised, we have joy. We have living hope. We have a secured future. How can you anchor yourselves in this sort of hope, in this sort of security, in the midst of whatever storm in life you're facing right now? It's all true. And it all matters. The best news ever is all true because Jesus rose from the dead. Let's pray. Jesus, as we think about all the things we have to be grateful for, uh, we just want to pause very intentionally and say how thankful we are that we serve a living Messiah who offers us living hope and a secure future. Jesus, thank you that you have shown that you've defeated death in your own death and resurrection and how how that gives us life, new life we can experience now and that carries forward into eternity. And so Jesus, by the same power that raised you from the dead, I pray that your resurrection power would be in work, would be at work in us and, and through us as your church here at Brookside. Giving us, the, giving us everything we've seen today, Jesus, the, the, the feelings of acceptance and assurance, but, but also the mission and the purpose and the hope that your resurrection really does offer. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.